Hey everyone! Welcome to the RUF at TC podcast. RUF is a community on campus learning about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. For more information about and ways you can support RUF at TCU, please visit ruf.org TCU. You know, we've been saying this all semester that the book of Revelation is written not so much so that you would pull out your secret decoder ring or your big charts and maps to try to find out what year the world is going to end. That's not why John wrote the book. But instead, it is, as his very first opening words mention, that it is to unveil and to reveal to us the person and the work of Jesus. We mention this many times, that it's like a lid being lifted off of a pot to see the contents inside of it. Another way of thinking about it is pulling back the curtain, and John is doing that He's pulling back the curtain on reality itself to show us what is, what is back there, as it were. To show us what is real, what is true. To show us, as we have said, not only future realities in light of the present, but listen, to show us present, unseen realities in light of the present. That's what John is trying to show us in this book. And tonight, we've come to the end of it, what we began back in January. And his unveiling of who Jesus is is right now for us and what he one day will bring to pass. I remember I said this too, that John's unveiling comes to us in the genre of literature known as apocalyptic, which was meant to be used to stir our hearts, to stir our hearts to see new things. It was to form our imaginations for the great hope that belongs to all who are in Christ Jesus. I love what Michael Ward once noted. He said this, quote, Arguments for the church or for the Bible or for experience or reason, listen, must all be imaginatively realized before they can begin to make traction on the reader's reason or uh, let alone the reader's will. Ward is saying this, that it is in our imaginations that our lives begin to be changed. Give someone a new story. Give them a new vision for their life. And when you do that, you've captured the entirety of the person. Ward is just naming what the Apostle John has been telling us all semester, that our imaginations have to be reshaped so that we may live faithfully. Hence the series title that we close on tonight, Awakening Images. So let's read together Revelation chapter 22. These selected verses here from 1 through 5 and then verses 14 through 21. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter in the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. 
And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I want everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us understand one last time this semester what he would teach us from this wonderful and beautiful book. Father, Son, and Spirit, um, it is to you that all of reality is oriented. And you, O Lamb of God, who is slain for us, who stand at the middle of the throne, praying for, interceding for your people, we ask now that you would send your Spirit to help us to understand what you have given to um, the Apostle John. Help our lives to be changed. Help us to see what you would have us to see tonight. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, the, you might say, eloquent poem called Jabberwocky opened like this. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the moam wraths outgrabe. In Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, the famed Alice comments on what was just read. Well, it seems very pretty, she said when she had finished it, but it rather, it's rather hard to understand. You see, she didn't like to confess, even to herself, that she couldn't make it out at all. <laughs> Somehow, she said, it seems to fill my head with ideas, only I don't exactly know what they are. Here's the question that the Jabberwocky raises. How do unknown ideas become real in the experience? You see, that is what John has been trying to do to his readers in this letter. He has been trying to address the hearts of the beaten down and bored by giving them a picture of the exalted and risen Christ. Why? To get to their everyday boots-on-the-ground experience. And that is what Jesus himself wanted for those first-century readers, and for you and for me as well. He doesn't want, he doesn't want the real objective, capital H, hope for his people to sound like meaningless God the hearts of his beloved bride. And so, in a masterful and majestic move, Jesus, through John, does something to press the hope of heaven, the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, as we looked at last week, further into our hearts. How so? Well, in Revelation 21 and 22, he tells of an, invasion, of an invasion story, though likely one you've never heard of before. Permit me to explain by way of a cinematic masterpiece. When I was a kid, the movie, The Never-Ending Story, there it is, was one of my favorites. Now, if you've ever had more important things to do in your life, like brush your teeth or take out the garbage or something like that, you may have missed it. It is the story of a boy in our world who finds this important book in the bookstore. And this book is unlike any other book that the boy has read. 
When the main character in the book begins to read the book, he begins to see that the fictional events in the book begin to invade his real world. So, for example, of lightning crashing, sure enough, lightning crashes in his world. And as a window crashes on the page of the book, it shatters. What is going on? The story that he is reading has invaded his story. The story that he has been reading and learning about has come crashing in on his existence. The world that he has been inhabiting has been caught up in the world that he is reading about. The two worlds have merged. And that is exactly what John wants us to see here. God himself, through an invasion of sheer grace, is bringing heaven to earth. And therefore, he's taking up our little stories up into his. And here's the thing. This changes everything for us. This is news that you can't remain indifferent toward. The note that echoes at the end of the book here in chapter 22 in Revelation is a promise. And it's also an invitation in light of that promise. What are they? Here it is. Jesus is coming soon. So come to him. Jesus is coming soon. So come to him. And oh, we so desperately need to hear both tonight, that promise and the invitation. Because why? Because life will beat you down in a thousand ways, won't it? It will steal your hope and rip it away from you. The chaos and the pain in your life seems oh so real at times. We have family members that divorce. We have friends that pass away. We seem to have even young people peers my age and your age that, that are, are saddled with disease that won't go away. And so you need something that's going to help you in those moments. And that's what John is writing about. He's trying to show you this. So here in these final words to those seven churches and to you and to me, John says, Jesus is coming. This is your story. Don't ever forget it. He hasn't abandoned you. And he won't forget you. So tonight... Let's look at what the text tells us about the two comings. The promise of Jesus's, and secondly, the invitation for you. That's what we'll look at tonight. Let's jump right in. First of all, this idea of the promise. The promise. John gives us the direct words of Jesus in chapter 22, verse 20. Did you catch them? They read as follows. John 22, verse 20. Jesus himself is speaking here. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus has not forgotten us. And he will return for us. Moreover, what he began to do, he will finish. You see, the world is not yet put back together. But when Christ comes, at his coming will, as the Apostle Paul said, it will happen in the twinkling and the blinking of an eye, we shall be made fit for the world that He has prepared, John 14, for us. And we read about that last week. But the takeaway is simple. Jesus has promised to come for us and to do so on His timing soon. You might say, well, that's not really soon. How soon are we talking here? Peter, this is the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. And what's really interesting when you think about the timing of Jesus' return, did you know that Jesus himself 
when he was on the earth, did not know when he would return. Did you know that? This is what John, this is what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 24. But concerning, this is Jesus speaking. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But I want you to notice as well here who cries out for it. Who cries out for him? Who is saying, come? Who is saying, come, Lord Jesus? Two things. Did you catch it? The Spirit. The Spirit is saying, come. And the bride, that that beautiful people of God, you and me, you and me are crying out in the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. One pastor puts it like this, and I haven't really thought about it, but it makes sense. This is our future selves. This is our future selves crying out for Jesus to come. And where is he to come? He's come back here. The Spirit and the bride are saying, come Lord Jesus, come finish the work that you began. Rescue, redeem. I mean, think about that right now. What is the Holy Spirit saying at this moment in time and space? He's crying out, come. Come. Hasten. Speed. This is an entreaty and request that God would come back in the person of Christ and put all things together. But when he does return, notice what we get access to. Two things I'll mention just for the sake of time. First, did you catch it there at the very beginning of the reading there tonight? Chapter 22 tells us this. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And here it is, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. And here's what I want you to see. Remember where that tree first appeared. Do you remember? It was way, way back in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, where all was right with the world, where sin had not screwed everything up yet. Everything was pristine. God and man, God and woman walked together in the garden in the cool of the day. Can you imagine? And now this tree shows up again. We've been cut off ever since Genesis chapter 2 from that tree. And now John is saying this, you have access to it. There is no longer any distance. So what is this telling us? It's very simple. The people from every tribe every tongue and every people will at long last be healed by this tree and it will never, ever, ever be lost again. And what this is saying symbolically is that all that we lost in the garden will finally be ours again. Sinlessness, God's presence, the enjoyment of one another, and we've learned from last week, culture itself, I mean, think about the beauties of this. That's what the tree of life symbolizes. It's life, capital L, life. That's what he's showing us. That's what Jesus is, as it were, bringing with us. But secondly, we talked a little bit about this last week. Notice as well what else he, he brings. Look there with me at, um, at uh, verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Amen. Remember that name throughout the book, foreheads, name on foreheads, just as a mark of identity. And what this is telling us is that we will be God's children and we will see his face. Do you know in the Bible that the face of God is symbolic for God's presence? Remember with me, it's what Moses longed to see but didn't, seeing only God's backside when he covered him and he passed by. It was the substance, the face of God, 
It was the substance of blessing that God's people have been blessed with since the days of Aaron. See if this sounds familiar. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His what to shine upon you? His face. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And here's what this is saying. When Christ returns, the face, the face that we have all longed to see all of our lives will be ours at last. Oh, friends, what will this be like to have unadulterated intimacy with our God? It will come soon. What is this saying? In other words, the distance that we created in the garden, God will at long last finally close. And we will see our God face to face again. Can you imagine it? The author, Jock Anderson, tells of this story, and I love it. He tells about what God is doing. He says this, that ever since the Garden of Eden, man has been running away from God, and God has not stopped pursuing man. The one who loves most is the one who pursues most. This calls to mind, he says, a story of a young man named Pablo, who, in a fit of anger with his father, left home, vowing never to return. Pablo set out on a glamorous life, but before long, his life became a life of squalor. He lived in the streets, scavenging for food and shelter. He longed to return home. Given how inauspicious his departure was, Pablo was not sure that his father would take him back. But meanwhile, his father waited every day for his son's return. One day, the father devised what he thought was an ingenious plan. He took an ad out in the local paper with a note saying, Pablo, if you read this notice, I want you to know that all is forgiven. I love you and I miss you. Please come home. I will meet you at midnight in the town square. Love, Father. Well, Pablo was elated to read his father's message. And when he arrived at the town square, he discovered 800 other Pablos, each seeking to return home to his respective father. Does that get something at you? About how we all long to see our father's face again? I don't care who you are. There is something that aches in you to come nose to nose with the one who knows you better than anyone else. To be intimate once again with the face that you've been longing for all of your life. And that's exactly what John is telling us will happen. That's part of the promise when the Lord Jesus comes that He will bring. And so I just want to ask you tonight... Do you have room? Do you have room in your Christianity for thinking about God in that way? That your goal is, your end, your great, where you are headed, is that you will see God face to face. I don't know what you think of, what lies at the heart of Christianity. It simply isn't about trying to get God to love you more or to clean up your act. What lies at the heart is face to faceness with the God who made you. Friends, that is power for life in this world. That is power to be able to love others, to know that you have your Father's face again. It is coming. But that's not, on, that's not the only coming that John talks about, is it? He talks, secondly, about an invitation. Because as the text tells us in verse 17, look at this. Look what it says. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. 
And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. There's a lot going on here, but I want to ask this question. I want you to see that this really is an invitation. Well, what is it an invitation to? And here it is, to all that was promised. What is an invitation to? All that was promised. Ezekiel chapter 47. Let me just mention this for a moment. That really is getting at this imagery from the waters of life. In Ezekiel chapter 47, there's an image of a river flowing from the temple. Here, that water of life that began in verse 1 of our reading tonight, it pictures it. And the the picture is to come drink and live. In other words, have all those old thirsts, those things that we've been running to that are more salt water than they are fresh water, only making us thirstier, come there to finally have your your thirst slaked. I don't know however many of you have maybe ever been in a desert, arid, dry climate, but water, the need for water is, I mean, it's just elementary. It's profoundly real. Without it, you will die. So what is John trying to show us here? He's saying, I'm trying to tap in. I'm trying to tap in, reader, to that deep part of you that longs, that deep part of you that desires. And where that deep part of you for the longing for God's face has actually caused you to run, as the prophet Jeremiah would say, to broken cisterns looking for water. Or imagine the silliness of of your thirst, of having thirst and running to the ocean's edge, reaching down with your hands and slurping up a mouthful of salt water. It's only going to make you thirstier than you've ever been. And what Jesus is showing us here through John is that Jesus himself is offering you the true water that satisfies. The true water that will slake your deepest desires. That will meet the thing that you most want, whatever that is. That it's there, it is there that God will meet us. The point is, is that this water of life is, the, is what you're invited to. And here's the second thing, for whom? Who is this invitation to? Well, you might think that this is for all the good people. You know, let's sort of let in all the good people into heaven and that's who it's for. And friends, nothing could be further from the truth. The consistent testimony throughout the Scripture is that the waters of life come precisely to those people who don't deserve it. Come precisely to the screw-ups like you and me. To the folks that can't keep their act and life together. It actually comes to people who don't want Jesus, and Jesus must come to them to slake their thirst so that He will. That's the promise. And it's those people, it's those people who are invited in. I love it. It's such a beautiful thing. The answer is, for whom? It's for anyone. It's for anyone. Anyone who would come and drink. That's the great promise tonight. That's the invitation. And look with, with me as well. So, but even though it is anyone, there is a distinction. It's not everyone. The text still shows us that. Look at verses 15 and 18 and 19. There's still a distinction. There are some who sadly will refuse such a great salvation. There are some who, to satisfy the hunger of their own pride, will not eat at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And if we don't want God and His ways in our lives, heaven won't be that desirable. I love what Eugene Peterson notes. He says as follows, If we don't want God or don't want Him very near, 
we can hardly be expected to be very interested in heaven. I like that. It's telling us that some will sadly turn down the best offer their soul could ever want. And it's here that I just want to pause for a moment and speak to you all sort of off script. I'm going rogue here. I want you to know this. I'm going to speak particularly to Christians for a moment. I want you to know that Jesus is telling you here, even if you are a Christian, that what you need more than anything else is that you need to come to the waters. That you need to come and have your your deepest thirst and deepest desires, whatever they might be, met and found in Jesus. May I urge you, quit running to the things that aren't bringing you life. May I urge you to have those greatest desires actually met in Jesus. This is what we most need tonight. I think about this often when I think about talking to Christians themselves. They sort of think that the point of the gospel is to sort of get them into the Christian faith. But once they get on and beyond the gospel, once they sort of become Christians, that Jesus sort of tosses them the keys and says, here you go, your turn. But the gospel is what we need at every turn of our lives, friends. This is what we need tonight. And so I invite you, will you come to the waters for the hundredth time, for the thousandth time? Will you come and see the face as best as you can, that loves you and that cares for you. This is what Jesus is inviting you to tonight. And then I'll speak and turn a little bit to my friends here tonight who would say, I don't really know what I think about Jesus. I don't really know what I think about this faith thing. Or I'm still in process wondering about the truth claims of Christianity. Here's what I would like to say to you tonight. I want you to know that you can come to the waters without price. These are free waters for you and for me. You pay nothing. You just show up and you just receive. This lies at the heart of every other man-made religion that says if you're good enough, if you'll clean up enough, then God will have something to do with you. And what the gospel, the good news of Jesus says is, is that all you have to do is come. You take Christ by faith. You take Him by trusting Him. And here's the great joy. All that I've spelled out to you this week, last week, and the week before, all of those promises can be yours in an instant tonight. And so I ask you to consider this question if you're still pondering Christianity. What makes Christianity still so hard? What are those doubts? What are those questions that you have? I'm not saying they're not there. But I am saying that you ought to take those to a friend. Or you ought to try to meet with me so that we can talk about them. Because this really is the most important thing that you can ever do with your life. That is to come and drink. To show up at the wedding feast. To show up and to see the God who made you nose to nose. And to have Him heal every hurt that has ever come into your life. This is the hope, the promise that Christianity gives you. That's what I want you to see tonight. And you know what? Again, like I said it last week, I'm not going to make you do anything weird if you want to do that tonight. All you have to do is trust. All you have to do is to say something like this. I'm going to trust that you are who you say you are, God. And I'm going to trust that what you say about me is true. And I'm going to trust, maybe even believing beyond hope or even beyond doubt 
that you can take care of it all. And that one day we'll be face to face. Take the waters. Come without money. Come and drink. Come by and eat. Come and live. This is the great hope. This is why John is writing this letter. Well, you might say, how can I know this? How can I know that God himself will actually deliver on these promises? And this now I'm speaking to everyone. Here it is. It's precisely because Christ gets what all of us deserve. Take a look with me at that, those verses there. They seemed sort of sobering, didn't it? They were language about the outsiders or the folks that uh, change, as it were, these, uh, these words of the prophecy. But here's what I want you to remember. I want you to see that Jesus died outside the city for us. I spoke about that last week. Remember, this Friday, we're going to celebrate Good Friday. And what happens on Good Friday? Jesus is taken on the cross and executed by the Roman state outside the city gates. He is treated as an outsider. Why? So that you might be treated as an insider of the city. You see, that's not it also. That's not it, as well. that's not it only. I want you to see something else. You and me have access, real access, to that tree of life. Because as the Bible tells us, that Jesus himself... Jesus himself took of the tree of death, the cross for you and me. So he climbs up the tree. He climbs up the tree of death so that you might have access to the tree of life. Many a pastor has pointed out the words of that great English poet, George Herbert, where he writes this, O all who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all, but only me. We took the fruit. Jesus climbs the tree. Do you see what he's doing there? He's closing the gap. He's putting back together what we screwed up. Well, listen, I'm going to close our time together where I've often gone this semester. Taking a look back, at C.S. Lewis's Narnia Tales. If you've never read those books, man, I just tell you, go and do it. Spend some time this summer and do it. But I want to read to you the very last paragraph of the whole series. It captures so well what we are longing and waiting on. If you've ever read these books, you know the twists and the turns of the Pevensey children. You know about Eustace. You know about princes and kings and all of Narnia's creatures. And how the great Aslan finally won the last battle. The book closes with him and the children leaving Narnia and entering into Aslan's country, which is their true home. And I'll let Lewis speak here. This is speaking of Aslan. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful then I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All of their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. 
Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Lewis's imagery is getting as what John promised. This is your story. Can you imagine that? Where every page, as you turn and read that story, just keeps getting better and better. And there's an infinite number of pages for you to delight in. This is your story, dear friends. Brothers and sisters, this is your hope. This is what Jesus has done for us. And he is coming soon, he says. And he will make good on it. Our little stories will be taken up into his. All sin, all brokenness, all the disruptions in the garden will at last be done away with. And history, yes, history itself will be complete. Then the triune God and his people will live forever as they were intended. This is our story. And until the day when it is realized, we wait. The days of sorrow, listen to me, listen to me. The days of sorrow won't be long now. They won't. God will save you. If Easter Sunday tells us anything, it is that God, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 25, verse 8, that God will swallow up death forever. It is done. There will be no more death. There will be no more death. Hallelujah. It will be over with because God will swallow it up forever. Its days are numbered and one day will be remembered no more. And so while we wait, we eagerly say, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. It's been a gift, O Lord, to walk through this book and to hear of the great hope that you give. I think I understand now why you gave it. Because I'm easily bored with you. Because I wonder in the midst of my sorrow, in the midst of my pain, what you can give to me that will keep me going. And maybe my friends know that too. Their, their sorrows are real. Their tears are real. And I know what it's like if they're with me about what it means to get bored with you and to cast ourselves on you in ways that we trust that you'll revive our hearts again. Thank you for this letter. Thank you for this semester. Help us to wait for you until you come again. Help us to be a people who wait well. And we do cry out with all of our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.